The Blunt Post with Vic. Good morning, happy Monday, and welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national, regional, and local headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress, local elected officials, and other high-profile public figures. Coming up next are my interviews with Congresswoman Barbara Lee and Congressman Adam Schiff, uh, two members of Congress that I respect immensely. So I hope you enjoyed these interviews. In 1998, Congresswoman Barbara Lee was elected to serve California's 9th Congressional District, now the 13th, in a special election. In 2001, Congresswoman Lee received national attention as the only member of Congress to oppose the authorization for the use of military force in the wake of the horrific events on September 11th. Congresswoman Lee has been a fierce advocate for ending HIV and ensuring an AIDS-free generation. Congresswoman Lee is the only African-American woman in Democratic leadership serving as co-chair of the Policy and Steering Committee. As co-chair, Rep. Lee works to ensure that committees reflect the diversity, dynamism, and integrity of the Democratic caucus. Congresswoman Lee, uh, thank you for being on The Blunt Post with Vic this morning. How are you doing? Yeah, doing great. Nice to be with you. Thanks for uh, thanks for taking the time. Much appreciated. Lots is happening in this sort of transitional period. Hopefully, I, I haven't yet said sort of like the ending of COVID, but transitional, maybe even escalating. Unfortunately, this period, and uh, I know that you're super busy. So, before I sort of ask you any specific questions, uh, what's your perception? How do you feel about where we are today? I think where we are today is a turning point, a defining moment. We could either go backwards and uh, regress in terms of our attempt to crush this virus or move forward. And it's so important that we encourage people to uh, get vaccinated. And I think it's important also to recognize that uh, we've got to continue with um, our health protocols, which have been stated by CDC and by our state, by local communities, because this Delta variant, uh, we see what's happening. And it's um, a variant that is novel. The, the science is evolving every day. And we need to make sure that um, we keep ourselves, our families, and our communities safe by following the guidelines and getting vaccinated and doing everything that's required. We'll get through this. But everyone has to do their part. Otherwise, uh, it's going to take much longer. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll sort of have another major crisis like we did last year. Uh, thank you for that. I want to go back, uh, um, Congresswoman, to well, what you did um, almost 20 years ago. It's the 20th anniversary is coming up uh, when your legislation, it, uh, it repealed the 20, uh, 2002 uh, authorization for use of military force against Iraq, which seems such a long time ago. Um, that was a huge victory for you, and the 20th anniversary is coming up. For those of us who don't know, you know too much about it, uh, would you elaborate? 
Sure, thanks, Vic. And there were two authorizations. One was 2001, which uh, was passed by Congress uh, in three days. It was a blank check that gave any president the authority to go to war forever. That was the one that I voted uh, against uh, and no one else voted with me. Everyone voted no. I mean, everyone voted yes, excuse me, I voted right. no, because it did give over authority to any president to uh, wage war, and that's unconstitutional. Every um, time a president needs to uh, use force, he or she needs to come to Congress. But that authorization was the 2001. The 2002 authorization is an authorization that was passed in Congress that would authorize the use of force against Iraq. And for those of, who don't remember or who weren't even born during that period, mm -hmm. uh, there was this whole effort by Secretary of State Colin Powell, um, President Bush, to mislead the public. Actually, they lied. They said there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, and we knew there were none. Um, and we tried to stop them because the inspectors were there in investigating and inspecting Iraq to determine whether there were or not. And so I offered an amendment to the, that authorization that said, just let the inspection process play out. Let the inspectors complete their, their work and then we'll determine what to do next. Well, of course, I only got 72 votes for that amendment, but had it passed and had it uh, become law, we would have learned that there were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. That was the purpose of that authorization, period. And it was based on a lie. And so I've been trying to repeal both of them <laughs> since then. And I've been able to repeal the 2001 and 2002 and appropriations bills and then authorization bills. And this, but we never could get them through the Senate and to the White House. So this year, once again, my bill to repeal the 2002 authorization, which was the Iraq resolution authorization, passed through the Foreign Affairs Committee. It passed through the off the floor with, I believe, 260 some votes. Uh, so it was a good bipartisan vote. Now it's in the Senate, and uh, of course, well, when it was in the House, the President and the Biden administration issued uh, what they call a SAP statement of administration's policy supporting repealing it so they supported my bill which they don't support a lot that comes to the floor but i was right. very pleased that they did so we got it into the senate i've talked with senator kane so senator kane now uh is working on the senate version which uh got off of the senate floor and i spoke with him this week and so um we're cautiously optimistic that we'll be able to bring it to the senate floor maybe who knows in september maybe but um also, it's bipartisan, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to build enough votes in the Senate to get it to uh, the president's desk. And if we do, uh, he indicated he would sign it. And so this would be a major, major victory for those who have understood for 20 years now that the Iraq war was based on lies. There were no weapons of mass destruction, and we sent our young men and women into harm's way. They did everything they could do. We inserted ourselves into, uh, you know, a war in Iraq, where a civil war where we should have never been. Countless refugees, countless um, Iraqis dead as a result, destroyed their country. And why did we do that? I'm glad that you went there because 
Um, I do remember all of this. I remember the case that was made, and I remember the UN inspectors repeatedly saying they haven't found any evidence. <clears throat> of course, later we learned that soon after uh, President Bush took office, he instructed his cabinet to find some sort of a reason, some sort of a something that ties uh, Saddam Hussein to uh, some sort of a crime to give him reason to go in there. It's very sad. History repeats itself from Bay of Pigs to uh, you know Cuban Missile Crisis and Iran-Contra. It just keeps happening. And uh, thank goodness for uh, elected officials like yourself who is willing to stand alone uh, and vote, uh, or, or I should say vote no, for something that... Uh, something that's just giving way too much power to one single person. I remember in that time, post 9-11, uh, it was this sort of weird uh, fear-mongering period when we as Americans, if we said no to anything having to do with the Bush administration, uh, by God, we were not patriotic. And, uh, you know, you were, we were either with them <laughs> or not with them or against them. Um, so congrats on that. I hope uh, with now having a, a very narrow Senate majority um, that that will pass and get to President Biden. And next, um, you know, we talked a little bit about COVID. And of course, so many Americans lost their jobs in last year and this year. And there's been some movement. There's been some improvements this year, at least so far. Um, I don't, I read numbers and figures coming out from the White House as well as just publications and I wonder how many of those sort of new jobs that are created were really jobs that were sort of uh, you know they people just lost them and then now they're going back or um, and things like that how do you I know that your job creation is, is on top of your priority and you're working hard on that uh, how do you see the situation right now Sure. And I think uh, what's important is to recognize how we've worked with the Biden-Harris administration to make sure that um, people's economic security wasn't totally destroyed during this deadly pandemic. And so we passed several bills that would fill in the gap and help people through this terrible period through the American Rescue Plan, through the CARES package and other packages to help with the extension of unemployment benefits, uh, to help with, again, eviction, um, an eviction moratorium, which we'll talk about in a minute, and also to make sure that um, when the caregivers and people in sectors that uh, essential services, uh, who are providing those essential services so that communities could survive through this period, that they're protected. Uh, and that small businesses receive the type of, uh, not necessarily loans, but grants to pay their employees, such as we provided resources for restaurants, but also for small businesses, minority-owned businesses, women-owned businesses, to make sure that they uh, are able to at least make payroll and to survive during this period. Having said that, many have gone on a business. I know it was estimated a couple months ago that about 40% of African-American businesses just went totally under because the first tranche of the resources, there were so many barriers there that uh, the big corporations <laughs> got access to the money that we had provided right. for relief for, for businesses. So we had to go back and make sure that we set aside 
I think it was 60 billion more specifically on the type of businesses, the mom and pop businesses, those that keep this country going, but don't have necessarily huge bank accounts or access to SBA loans or, you know, the traditional banking systems and financial systems that, that the big businesses have. So it's been really hard uh, for people of color and, and people who are running small businesses to stay afloat. So, uh, and, and of course, jobs have been lost. Uh, we, some people can't afford, even if there were jobs available, I mean, the cost of childcare, especially for women who have, uh, all the reports are showing that uh, they have not returned to the workplace because of taking care of their families and their children. And so chi- we're trying to make childcare a priority in the American Families Plan because uh, women, uh, and men need need good quality child care for their kids so they can go back to work. And finally, let me just say we need uh, the minimum wage um, raised, uh, uh, you know, to a living wage. And what is what we've learned and seen during this whole period is that um, people were paid such low wages until they, they couldn't even meet their obligations. They'd have to work two or three different jobs. And so with the Biden administration we talk about building back better, but progressives say, yeah, we've got to build back better and bolder so that we don't get back to where people have to work two and three jobs just to survive Indeed. to take care of their families. That's just unacceptable in, in this uh, wealthy and powerful country. If you are uh, just joining us, uh, this is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Charami, and you are listening to my interview with Congresswoman Barbara Lee, much wealthier than some of the nations that have those um, those social programs in place and have the yeah and and Vic and let me just say sure. here I believe in a universal um, income a guaranteed annual universal income because we have to have a floor that people can't fall beneath and so in my city I know uh, Mayor Tubbs in Stockton my city of Oakland and other cities are using uh, trying to develop demonstration projects to show that if you help people during really hard times that they can survive those times and move forward and get a good paying job and take care of their family. So we have to look and think out of the box on how, what economic security, what what vehicles, financial vehicles and economic uh, strategies are in place to help people beyond just uh, helping to extend unemployment. A Band-Aid, absolutely. I think that's what, one of the reasons I really like your work because you're not afraid to say it or do it. and. Uh, you know, with diplomacy as it is, a lot of people are sort of people pleasing uh, or trying to sort of make everyone happy all of the time. It never works. Um, what I was going to say earlier is, you know, why if we look at nations like Denmark and Norway and Belgium and Sweden that have the highest standards of living and the happiest people based on surveys, you know, why can't we look to them and follow some of their model? It's just such an uphill battle. Well, Vic, let me let me just say this: those countries don't have large numbers of African Americans or people of color. Okay, uh, we have issues in America of systemic racism, right? And especially historical racism. Of course, for African Americans dating back 401 years ago to the Middle Passage. So yeah, we could do it if if there was the will, but we have to dismantle these structures that are barriers to people of color. Those countries. Uh, don't have populations that uh, 
you know, they may have small populations of Africans or people of color from all around the world, but they don't have systems of injustice that have been built in since the beginning of the founding of their countries. Absolutely, 100%. It's an institutionalized uh, racism. And a lot of times, I think, um, from what I've learned from some of my black friends is don't just say racism because it's too blanket, but anti-black racism, which is a whole different experience for uh, black Americans in this nation. Um, I think uh, black Americans and, and Native Americans have had a very unique traumatizing experience, uh, although other minorities too have had their fair share. In fact, um, one of my last questions was going to be, and we can get into it now, is, you know, we we have short memories and we sort of get all wound up about something and then it's passe. Um, I was going to ask you in this sort of post-George Floyd era, when we're still seeing, you know, Texas a police officer, you know, almost suffocating a young black girl. Are we going into, into the right direction or is it just too slow? How do you think this is all happening? Well, it's much too slow. And uh, we're not painting every police officer with the same brush, but we know that many police departments are, are inherently racist. And we also know the history of policing. And so we've seen it's brutal murder and that the world saw really woke people up, right? Yeah. Those who didn't believe or didn't know what systemic racism is, now they do. So what do we do about it? Minimally, we should pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. I mean, minimally. Right. Uh, I mean, come on. We need these modest reforms that ban chokeholds, that ban no-knock warrants. It set up a national registry. I mean, now police officers can go from one jurisdiction to another, even if they've murdered someone. I mean, and so we've got to have some national standards for policing, and we've got to have more um, funding and more resources for the front end to help make sure our, our black and brown communities are truly safe uh, and know what mass incarceration has done, not to mention how many black and brown people have been killed at the hands of police. I mean, I was a community worker with the Black Panther Party. <laughs> that was right. in the day. And we, we were trying then to stop police brutality and police um, misconduct and murders. And so we have to have total police reform. And one step forward is the jo George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. And I just have to say, to, uh, you know, Congresswoman uh, Karen Bass and Senator Booker have been working very hard to try to get the Republican Senator Tim Scott to understand that uh, it's in everybody's interest and in the country's interest to have a, a good legislative strategy or and laws on the books so police departments can be guided to really um, police in a way that uh, is just and fair to everyone. Yeah, and that's a good example of what you said earlier. You said we need to sort of take down some of the structures that have built these institutional institutionalized, um, not just racism, but systems that are just not working. And one of them being our prison industrial complex of privatizing them and giving them incentives, which is driving this, um, <clears throat> this whole police state. And uh, I don't know if you've been following LA District Attorney George Gascon's career since he was elected last year, who has really 
um, done a great job of, of doing it, you know, doing the things that he promised he was going to do during this campaign. But of course, now we're seeing a backlash of people or some people at least wanting him recalled because he's been tough on police brutality and uh, has been trying to do, you know, criminal justice reform. And uh, we, we see some examples of that where it's mostly Republicans trying to recall Democrats. But uh, well, yeah, that's who they are. And whenever you step out to try to ensure that there's justice and and reform some of these systems of injustice, Republicans, because they they benefit from the the types of systems that are in place. That's that's who they are. That right. keeps them in power, and that keeps white supremacy intact in this country. And and we've got to shatter those, you know, barriers that have been built on white supremacy and racism. And Republicans don't believe that. They don't even understand it and they could care less. Yeah, I think that last uh, that last phrase sums it up. They could care less. Thankfully, we have uh, President Biden in office and uh, um, Senator Kamala Harris or Vice President Kamala Harris now uh, to give us some hope. Um, with that, I want to transition to uh, the work you've done um, for uh, you know, as you know, um, California has about 900,000 Armenian Americans, and, and your district has um, quite a lot. And you've done a, a lot of work for the Armenian American community. You're part of the Armenian Congressional Caucus. You know, tell us what's been what's been happening lately, because uh, I mean, I know, but I want our listeners to hear it from you. <laughs> sure. Well, from for many years, I mean, I was out front. I remember in the Foreign Affairs Committee years ago, Appropriations Committee, I actually chaired the subcommittee on foreign operations, which funds all of our non-defense related. Um, but I was one of the first to fight to declare um, the genocide, that um, what happened in Armenia was a genocide. Right. And uh, I've had a vis- uh, the privilege to visit uh, Armenia in 2019, the House Democratic Partnership, of course, we're uh, engaging in um, with the Armenian parliament to help strengthen its democracy. And, and so I've been very involved in Armenian issues for many, many years, and I've been just horrified by the uh, recent uh, violent assaults that the Azerbaijani forces have perpetrated in 2020. And there's got to be a negotiated solution between both countries. And the U.S. Uh, must stand firm, firmly against such aggression and support efforts to bolster these negotiations. But in the bill, just to bring you up to date, in my bill that passed off the floor a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. we put in $50 million for assistance for Armenia. We put in $6 million for reconciliation in the Caucasus. We put in $2 million um, for the demining effort in Nagorno-Karabakh. Mm-hmm. We did the, an amendment that would... Um, actually prohibit Azerbaijan from receiving um, military education and chain training funding. That's the IMED account. And we um, expressed concerns over, this is in my bill, over the administration's waiver, which limits military aid to um, Azerbaijan and directed the president to take the imbalance in assistance to Armenia and Azerbaijan into account. So we did as much as we could do to get the votes to get this bill off of the floor. Uh, but, uh, you know, hopefully we'll be able to move forward to make sure that finally uh, there's some type of, uh, you know, 
peace agreement and and the Armenian the refugees we put in humanitarian assistance in the past for the refugees from this latest war and uh, we're going to keep working to make sure that justice is finally served Thank you, Congresswoman. Thank you for your support. Um, I'm just going to ask you one more question because I I know how busy you are. And that is about um, National Youth HIV AIDS Awareness Day. Excuse me. Uh, It was a bill that you um, sponsored in 2017 to just basically um, have the youth not have the stigma of HIV and, and, and AIDS and get tested yeah. and all of that. Um, that was a big, big deal. Um, will you elaborate a little bit about that? Sure. You know, young people, uh, I do a lot with young people um, on a variety of fronts. And one, uh, I've been working in this space for many years on HIV and AIDS. And I found a, a, quite a few young people, you know, understand the stigma and they really haven't had comprehensive health education uh, in the schools or reproductive health education or really anything. And so what I'm trying to do is make sure young people know, first of all, they have people on their side, members of Congress, who support their efforts. We don't want them to uh, be discouraged or not understand why why uh, ending HIV and AIDS is, is paramount to my agenda because we don't want our young people uh, to get sick or to get infected and so it's important that young people know that uh, we're working to make sure we educate them so they can ed- educate others about why um, we've got to end HIV and AIDS by as the UN has indicated we can do it by 2030. Absolutely it's very important um, thank you for your work on that. If you are uh, just joining us, uh, this is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Charami, and you are listening to my interview with Congresswoman Barbara Lee. Congresswoman, uh, is there a question that I should have asked that I missed, or would you like to make a point uh, or add something? Well, no, let me just add this. Uh, when you talk about resource allocation and, and spending, we have to look at the military budget. And so I'm co-chair of the Defense uh, Spending Reduction Caucus. We, we're, we're trying to address defense spending uh, by hopefully uh, getting a 10% cut in, a, in the Pentagon budget passed. We, we got nearly 100 votes last year. So it's a politically hard vote for members but when you look at a defense budget of over 740 billion dollars now at least 150 200 has been has been identified in waste fraud and abuse and so we've got to get this defense spending under control where we have the resources to ensure support for our troops uh they need more support which which we are fighting for they many are on section 8 and food stamps and we want to support our troops as much as we can in a much better way but we also and so those resources should be used for them and we want to make sure that um, we have a national security that's strong that can meet any of the global threats that we have but not necessarily fuel the military industrial complex by spending money that uh, is misspent the Pentagon has never been audited it should have been audited years ago so I'm fighting yeah. Uh, with a Republican colleague to try to get the the Pentagon to audit their resources. What family, what agency, what what does this say about we have to do audits our own selves. The IRS does audits on individuals, businesses, 
agencies all have to comply with uh, with audits, but the Pentagon doesn't. Right. So it's out of control. It's out of control spending, and uh, we've got to get this under control. So I'm asking when our amendment comes to the floor, Congressman Mark Pocan and I, that we get support for a 10% reduction in um, the defense budget because it's absolutely necessary. Which they is- contract out too much. They can do it in-house, hire more people, good-paying jobs. We can cut that budget by 10%. Right, which is not a whole lot, you know. It's no, that's the, about 70, it's not, it, but it's 74, $75 billion. But look at yeah. where we could reinvest. Absolutely. That's $75 billion, where we could enhance the quality of life for so many and lift people out of poverty, which I work on quite a bit, make sure children uh, are, you know, fed and have good quality education, decent, safe place to live, and that their parents have a, have a path way into the American dream, where now so many don't. Absolutely. Well, uh, Congresswoman Lee, thank you for all that you do. Uh, Thank you for being on the show. Uh, Much appreciated. And uh, good luck to you. Uh, I know that I'll be following uh, developments coming from your office. Thank you, Vic. Really nice being with you. (laughs) You too. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. That was the beloved Congresswoman Barbara Lee from the Oakland uh, Bay Area. Her directness, her willingness and courage to speak the truth uh, is so refreshing. Um, I really enjoy having her. This was her second time on The Blunt Post with Vic. Uh, Congresswoman Lee, thank you so much for being on the show. The Blunt Post with Vic. Congressman Adam Schiff is an American hero, an icon, and one of the most extraordinary members of Congress in modern American history. He represents California's 28th Congressional District, which includes Glendale, Pasadena, Burbank, Hollywood Hills, East Hollywood, and West Hollywood. In his 11th term in the House of Representatives, Congressman Schiff currently served as the chair of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, which oversees the nation's intelligence agencies. Congressman Schiff was one of the managers appointed by the House of Representatives in 2020 to conduct the impeachment proceedings of then-President Donald Trump. Congressman Schiff has worked tirelessly to advocate and improve healthcare, education, criminal justice reform, immigration, the economy, issues important to the Armenian-American community and the LGBTQ community. Congressman Schiff, thank you again for doing this. It seems like (laughs) issues concerning the Armenian-American community on a large scale, they just keep happening. (laughs) I mean, you, you worked so hard for the recognition of the Armenian genocide. You brought it to the House in 2019, and it passed and went to the Senate, passed, and President Biden signed it. But now we have this entirely different thing to deal with. Uh, And of course, a lot of people are looking uh, at your leadership. What is your assessment and and, uh, perception about where we are now? Well, I I guess it begins with a great frustration because the war uh, in Artsakh was preventable. And uh, for years, Azerbaijan uh, provoked violence along the line of contact. And many of us in Congress uh, through successive administrations, urged uh, our State Department uh, to forcefully push back, to uh, call out Azerbaijan for its uh, belligerence and its uh, provocative acts, and 
Uh, and the most that we could get was uh, statements of uh, moral equivalence. Uh, we called both sides to cease any further violence, called both sides to peacefully resolve the differences. When you do that, when you're not willing to hold one side accountable that's responsible, it's essentially greenlighting further aggression. And I think that gave Azerbaijan the impression that they could uh, continue along that path and make war without repercussion. And so the, the, my first um, sentiment about the whole thing is just how tragically preventable it was. And, uh, and then uh, the horrific loss of life, uh, Turkey's role in importing mercenaries uh, from Syria, uh, terrorists uh, to... Uh, joined the, the mayhem, um, again demonstrated how incompatible Turkey's actions are with being a NATO ally. And more immediately, uh, we still need to continue the pressure to return these prisoners of war to end these sham prosecutions and uh, make sure that these uh, young people are returned to their families. Uh, so that, that trauma continues. Uh, and. Uh, the only thing I think that's going to achieve the result that we want is for the United States and our allies to continue to pressure Azerbaijan and to hold them accountable in the international court of law. So uh, that's a lot. Um, I'm working on some reforms to the Freedom Support Act so that we uh, don't provide aid to Azerbaijan when they're engaged in human rights violations. and. Uh, and we've had a number of conversations with the Biden administration to get them to stop. Um, and if we need to change the law, then that's what we'll need to do. I'm not, I was going to ask you about that later, but since you brought it up, you know, it was very surprising that about a week after President Biden recognized the Armenian genocide properly, uh, he turned around and waived Section 907, uh, which you just spoke about, and. And I know that you have I've followed your actions about that and you voiced your concern and such. What was that about? Yeah. I just have a hard time understanding that. Well, the, you know, the rationale the administration gives is that the assistance they're providing, they're being very careful to make sure that it can't be used for offensive purposes against uh, Azerbaijan, against Armenia or Artsakh, and that it's for things like um, preventing drugs from coming across the border into Azerbaijan. Um, regardless, um, resources are at one level fungible unless there's a requirement that you maintain other efforts, you can always divert resources. Right. Um, but more than that, just the idea that we would be providing any kind of military support to a nation that just made unprovoked war against its neighbor, um, uh, just I think is wrong. and. So, you know, what, what the State Department, Defense Department have said is that they're following the requirements of Section 907, but 907 is very permissive, mm. uh, the way it's written. And so I've been working with the Armenian community on legislation that would change and remove uh, some of the discretion in that provision. Well, that God clarifies a lot. Thank you for that. Um, and especially Azerbaijan, I mean, do they really need any aid with the oil that's oil and gas that's yeah. going out of there? It just, it baffles me. Another thing that baffles me is, I think one of the wake-up calls for me after September 27th was, of course, I had no expectation of the uh, expectations of the Trump administration and Secretary Pompeo at the time. I 
Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, President Trump gave Erdogan the green lights to do what he needed to do. But I was surprised by the inaction of the European Union, Council of Europe, a lot of European bodies, I feel like they play three monkeys. And then a couple of days ago, of course, the ambassadors of many nations, excluding the US, uh, Russia, and France, members of the OSCE Men's Group, uh, went to parts of occupied Artsakh on this tour, on this propaganda tour. That too, I don't understand. I mean, Greece was one of them. I thought, really, Greece? Um, do those things baffle you, or you know, you you're so your perspective is so much broader, bigger that you kind of understand it? Well, I, I don't understand all of it. I don't understand uh, what you've described, particularly Greece's role. That's very shocking. Um, in terms of of Europe's inaction. Uh, you know, I think uh, France tried to play a leadership yeah. role, um, but the United States is uh, really indispensable. And when we lead, uh, we have the capacity to inspire others to, to act with us. When we don't lead, then other nations consider it a pass, and they yeah. uh, don't necessarily take responsibility to fill in the void. And, uh, and so without stronger leadership of the United States to push back against uh, Azeri aggression uh, without more initiative by the United States and the Minsk group. The Minsk group process kind of languished and, uh, uh, and we are where we are. So, you know, for a lot of the last several years, I, I watched uh, Macron and I thought uh, that I'm glad that someone is yeah. trying to do something. Um, but uh, the degree to which Turkey and Azerbaijan are going to feel compelled to do something because France is asking versus France and the United States. It's a big, big difference. Sure. I would think that uh, President Biden, having been you know, in, in Congress for decades prior to that, and he's very knowledgeable about this entire issue, that, that they would really be a little bit more firm. But I don't see that from him or Secretary Blinken. Um, I think that it's still probably too early to tell which direction the administration is going uh, with some of these issues. Um, they're obviously looking at Azerbaijan, not alone through the prism of the impact on Armenia. And uh, at the same time, um, I found the administration when I was lobbying them on the genocide to be more supportive, more conversant with the issue than any other administration I dealt with. And uh, and that led, not surprisingly, to the result that we all hoped uh, with the president's recognition of the genocide. So um, in many respects, I think they understand the region and the history better than prior administrations, but we still plainly have work to do. Um, because they have not been willing to stand up to Azerbaijan the way they need to. Yeah. I just wonder if, um, you know, sometimes it's we simplify and think it's just the oil and gas and the, the weapons that Azerbaijan buys from Western countries and such. And, of course, they have such a strong lobby power and just a propaganda machine. Um, I see it and read it on a daily basis. It's. Um, I think that's one of the reasons when, when President Macron was so, I think, courageous with it and was trying to get the French troops there vis-a-vis -vis UN, thought, wow, someone is 
actually going to do something. Uh, it was a little bit of hope, but you know, right now they're they're using these prisoners of war, who I think at this point are hostages, yeah. to really make deals. You know, to make deals, and it's such a tragic situation that's just been going on. They really are hostages. I think yeah. that's exactly the right word for it. Um, and I don't know whether you know, part of the issue um, is in terms of a reluctance uh, by any administration to take on a stronger role, push back on Azerbaijan, it has to do with the geop geopolitical considerations vis-a-vis -vis Russia. But uh, we have a moral obligation, and. You know, we've learned, I think, the hard way that uh, when we uh, sacrifice our values um, in the hope that it will serve the national interest, it doesn't, because our values are our interests, and our interests are our values, and so um, we're going to, you know, we're going to keep pushing back. I, I do think that with respect to the Congress, the the Azeri lobby is a big deal, um, and the Turkish lobby has been a big deal, yeah. and a big impediment. I think that's less of an issue with the administration. I think the administration is it's more geopolitical thinking than it is the lobby. But you know, in Congress, we have a very broad base of support, bipartisan base of support for Armenia. Yeah. And uh, we want to strengthen the U.S.-Armenia relationship. Glad to see we've got a substantial amount of funding in the appropriations bill for Armenia and money for demining uh, operations in Atsakh as well. Uh, not as much as we would like, but nonetheless, um, given where the budget is these days. Uh, Without you, it would have been uh, way less. So I want to sort of put you on the spot, if I can, for a second. I know that all people, whether it's it's, uh, you know, uh, Armenian community, LGBT community, whatever minority group, uh, we expect so much from our members of Congress and we think everything can just be fixed like that. <laughs> share something that you would like to share with the Armenian community that you think they, they just need to know, just know where you're coming from. Well, I was going to come back to the same thing, which is... Um, from my very first days, and even before politics, um, the Armenian community welcomed me like a member of the family. And it's been a wonderful uh, relationship. And I think that the, the affinity that I have for the community, and I hope the community has for me, um, a lot of it comes from my own background. I come from a community that had, it, had its own genocide. Um, I know what it's like to have an affinity for a country far away, surrounded by hostile neighbors. Yeah. Uh, and those struggles are familiar uh, to me. I know the, the pain of genocide denial when I hear Holocaust denial. And also, uh, there, there's so many cultural similarities in love of family and love of food and looking at uh, the, your, your colleague's uh, t-shirt. Um, <laughs> uh, that same sentiment, I'm not yelling, I'm Armenian. You could say that about the Jewish community, too. Uh, so just not just... as loud. <laughs> yes, I wrote, two years ago, I wrote a, a long-form article. I called it Jews, colon, Armenians, other cousins. And I went into how uh, we've considered the Greeks our cousins. I think a lot of it has to do with our past with Turkey and then the French for you know France's role in sort of 
toward the end of the genocide, what they did in rescuing of Armenians and such. And then uh, I go into the connection between the Jewish community and Armenians and from Ambassador Morgenthau to Franz Werfel to, you know, who, who wrote 40 Days of Musadal, to, to Raphael Lemkin, who coined the term genocide and on and on. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. I was remarking to my staff the other day, I was at the groundbreaking for the Armenian American Museum and Cultural Center, and listening to the Protestant uh, priest, uh, Armenian priest, who spoke. Um, I they was let him there? They let him in? <laughs> Indeed. Um, I was really struck by, and I, I guess he was speaking in the Western dialect, okay. how much the chanting of the prayers in Armenian in the Western dialect reminded me of the chanting of prayers in Hebrew. And I didn't know whether it was the geographic proximity that, that accounted for the similarity, but I, I, I was really struck by it. And yeah, uh, so I think we are cousins. Yes. I actually went to the Holocaust Memorial in Yerevan too. Uh, I went to the Armenian Genocide Memorial and the Holocaust Memorial. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that line from Hitler when he gave the speech before invading Poland, I think it haunts people who nowadays are members of the extermination of Armenians, yeah. trying to convince the, the Nazis that uh, don't worry about killing Jews, no one's going to care, yeah. forget it like they did with the Armenians. So, Congressman, I don't want to break my <laughs> promise of how long this is going to take. Um, I do want to ask you if you want to add something, if there was a question I should have asked you. Um, I don't think so. No, I really appreciate what you're doing. And uh, you. give some hope to Armenians who feel very embattled. Uh, the history of the Armenian people is a history of resilience. It's a history of overcoming difficulties, experiencing setbacks, and yet pushing forward, always forward, and overcoming. It's a history tinged with great sadness, but also great joy. And the Armenian community will will continue to persevere. Uh, I have every confidence, and, and I'm just grateful to have such a close relationship and to be able to see the contributions the community makes to our, our lives in, in America and around the world. Uh, so this is a very difficult time, but, but people should know these, this too shall pass. And, and, and we, we support you and love you and cherish you. Thank you, Congressman. Well, I can't tell pleasure. you what this meant. Thank oh. you for, for coming in and Thank pleasure you. talking to you again. That was the extraordinary Congressman Adam Schiff, you are you are an icon, and I and I thank you for everything that you've done. Before we go, I'd like to thank KPFK, the station that brings you unfiltered and commercial-free news, opinion, and hopefully some inspiration. Thank you for joining me today on the Blunt Post with Vic. The Blunt Post with Vic.